listening to the Sermons Podcast for Ottawa Baptist Church. We pray that you will be blessed and encouraged by this week's message. Last week we spoke about King Asa and how he went through the regions of Judah and began to tear down the pagan shrines and the pillars and the high places. These places that signified the worship of other gods. And he cleansed the land and the people's hearts were drawn back to Yahweh, the God of Israel. And we considered that story and thought about the landscape of our own lives. How might God desire for us to purify our hearts before him and to offer ourselves to God as an act of worship? I want to continue with King Asa's story today because I think there is something powerful for us to learn. King Asa's story covers about three chapters, and so this morning, instead of reading all three chapters, I want to just do a summary, some of the highlights of King Asa's life. We're told that the kingdom of Judah under Asa enjoyed peace, that the Lord was the one who was giving them great rest from his enemies, and in the early stages, the land of Judah is under attack by an Ethiopian named Zerah. And his army was considerably larger than that of Judah. And so Asa deployed the troops. And in doing so, he cried out to God, saying, Oh Lord, no one but you can help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, Lord, for we trust in you alone. The scriptures go on to tell us that it was the Lord that defeated the Ethiopians. The Lord and his army gave Judah and King Asa the victory. And they received plunder from the battle. And as they are returning from the battle, the Spirit of God moves upon a man by the name of Azariah. And Azariah calls out to Asa, Listen, Asa, he shouted. Listen, all of you people of Judah and Benjamin. The Lord will stay with you as long as you stay with him. And whenever you seek him, you will find him. But if you abandon him, he will abandon you. When Asa heard the message from Azariah, he was greatly encouraged. It was around this time that many people who were in the northern tribes in Israel started to recognize that God was doing something in the southern kingdom. And many of those who were living in Israel decided that they would move to the place where God was at work. And last week we covered the passage where in the 15th year of King Asa's reign, he gathered people together and they renewed the covenant with the Lord their God and they earnestly sought after him and the scriptures tell us they found him. And the Lord gave them rest on every side. And there was no more war until the 35th year of King Asa's reign. And it is here that we see a significant transition that takes place. What did we previously see? That King Asa made some serious religious reforms. He turned the people's hearts back to serving Yahweh. And God fought on their behalf. He gave them great victory over an army that was mightier than theirs. And they experienced rest for 20 years. And here's the transitional piece. In the 36th year of King Asa's reign, King Basha of Israel invaded Judah. How would Asa respond to this threat? He removed the silver and gold from the treasuries of the temple of the Lord, and he sent it to King Ben-Hadad from Aram, who was ruling in Damascus. And he approached the king of Aram and said, let's make a treaty between you and I. See, look at the gifts that I have given you. Break your treaty with King Basha of Israel so that he will leave me alone. And Ben-Hadad from Aram says, I like 
how that sounds. I will receive your gift. And the commanders of the army, Aram, attacked the towns of Israel. And so Basha, as he's hearing this, decides to flee and return home because his home was under attack. And we say, this is fantastic news. They achieved the desired result. Their enemies are gone. But at that time, Hanani, the prophet, he came to King Asa and he said, because you have put your trust in King of Aram instead of the Lord your God, you missed the chance to destroy his army and the king of Aram. Don't you remember what happened previously to the Ethiopians and the Libyans and their vast army? With all of their chariots and charioteers, at that time you relied on the Lord and the Lord handed him over to you. The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. What a fool you have been, the prophet says, for now you will be at war. There's a single focus for us this morning, and I'm going to let you know what it is right now. And the single focus is this, the importance of continuous commitment to God and trust in him. The importance of continuous commitment to him and trust in the mighty God of heaven. If you were married, then on your wedding day, you would have exchanged vows with your spouse. More than likely, you would have said, many I love yous. And you would have signed paperwork that would recognize the validity of your covenant relationship, even in the eyes of the state. Now imagine from that moment forward, your spouse never saying, I love you again. Or made no attempt to grow in your relationship together. The spouse could be loyal, could not have a wandering eye, could be faithful to you, but that spouse never intended to actually grow the relationship beyond the wedding day. What type of covenant relationship would you have with that person after a period of time? You see, the wedding day is absolutely important, but how many of you know the wedding doesn't make the marriage? You can spend a million dollars on a wedding and have an awful marriage. The wedding is just the start. It is a celebratory start to a brand new life. And from there, there is this continuous demonstration of commitment and love and faithfulness. You constantly say, I love you, I love you. And it's not just with words, but it's with deeds. There is this acts of affection and tenderness that confirm the love that you declare. Intimacy of the relationship grows, and as you understand one another, we can better demonstrate the ongoing faithfulness to our spouses. Again, it would be a rare occasion for a marriage to last not even 20 years, 20 weeks, if I love you was only spoken on the wedding day. In our Christian walk, there was a time where we have received God's grace, his gift of salvation. There was a point in time where he moves upon our heart, we respond, we confess our sins, and we declare, Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Savior. But there are many Christians who never move beyond that point. There's a wedding day where we have moved into a relationship with Christ. But there's not a demonstration of continual commitment and faithfulness to him as a posture in daily life. 
And just as the wedding day doesn't automatically make a successful and meaningful marriage, a conversion to Christ doesn't automatically make a successful and meaningful relationship with God. It's unfortunate that many people look at the conversion moment and say, that's good enough. Let's avoid all of that eternal torment and hell stuff. Glad I got the old fire insurance. And there's no progression, and it's unfortunate that many people view faith that way. And that is an immature view of the work, the considerable work that Jesus Christ has done through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection. To only look at salvation as being this get-out-of-hell-free card. How we have limited the work and understanding of who God is and the work of who his son is, the one who brings restoration and new life to his people. This conversion begins a new relationship with God, and the result is this continuous, growing, thriving relationship of commitment and trust to him. Last week, we talked about Romans 12, how there is this posture where I'm living and growing and pleasing God with my life continuous display of commitment and faithfulness now and forevermore as we look at king ace's life the beginning was filled with god honoring moments he was filled with such commitment and fire and passion and zeal and he was rewarded for it and we see that in verse 19 there was no more war till the 35th year and so we look at this time span of 20 years that's taken place. And I think there's something really important for us here. Let's drill down on the statement a little bit. The importance of displaying continuous commitment and trust in God. Let's drill down on that piece a little bit further this morning. The display of continuous commitment and trust in God in seasons of rest. I'm going to move into the realm of speculation a little bit here this morning. So please bear with me, but I think there's good reason for this speculation considering what we know about the human condition and biblical patterns that we see in the scripture. And I think there is a strong chance that King Asa moved into this time of rest and blessing and that that period of rest affected his zeal and commitment which he had previously displayed as he sought the face of God. We know that when we are under pressure or when we feel strain or when we're moving into a season of life, whether it be uh, a new job, the addition of a family member, a new relationship, a marriage, a place where we lack experience, in those moments of vulnerability, we understand a little bit more just how powerless we are, and we call upon God in times of pressure. We call upon Him in those moments because those moments expose our weakness. How many of you have ever seen the movie where there is a character in the movie that's facing a difficult time and they do one of these? God, I know we haven't spoken in a while, but, and it usually enters this request that the God that they haven't spoken to in quite some time would somehow meet a need that they have. When you're going through a horrible medical diagnosis or you lose a job, after just purchasing a house or having a new addition to the family or when a valuable relationship ends or there's a battle that you're facing, more often times than not, believers will quickly call upon God for relief and for help. They will seek God. 
We're going back to King Asa. Judah is being overwhelmed and attacked by the Ethiopians. And what is the posture of Asa? Oh God, no one but you can help the powerless. We will trust in you alone. And that posture resulted in victory for Asa and the kingdom of Judah. We're going to move into the time period where there is no more war. After a period of rest, King Basha invades Judah. And at the first sign of trouble, after a period of rest, Asa's decision was now different than what it had been previously. And instead of calling upon the Lord, he called upon King Ben-Hadad of Aram for help. You see, King Asa's a pro now. He's professional king. He's been doing this for 35 years now. He's got that experience under his belt. He's got the armies built up. He has the cities that are fortified. He's been in battles. He's not powerless. He can handle this, surely. And he puts his trust in the king of Aram, which is really trust in his own ability to be able to manufacture the result that he wants, which is to deliver Judah. And the trust that he had once displayed is no longer there. He trusts now in his own human imaginations and reasonings. I mentioned earlier it was easier to call upon God in times where we're facing strenuous circumstances or when we're facing a significant battle or walking into a place where maybe we lack experience. But the question is, how is our zeal and passion for God? And how are you continuously committed to him when things are good? And when you're entering and walking in a season rest, in a season of rest, when there's no medical, medical challenges, when you're in a season of abundance relationally, you're not spe- experiencing any kind of loneliness, when you have six to 12 months of Living expenses saved in the bank account, you can actually afford to take the family on vacation this year. Or when you start to get experience in the new job or a new season of life, and you're not really experiencing much pressure, how are you continuing to display commitment and trust in God in seasons of rest? Are you still allowing Him to transform your life? Are you still walking with Him on a daily basis? Do you have that Romans 12-1 posture that says, I offer my life as a living sacrifice to you, O oh God. Because that is who I am. That is what you've called me to do. And that is the attitude of my heart. You know, sometimes we let outside circumstances dictate the level of our relationship with God, the terms of our relationship with God. When things are difficult, we search for God. And when things are good, not so much. And if that is true, then we are letting outside external forces determine our closeness with God, and that is always problematic. Always problematic. And it leads us to even ask, why do we even search for God in the first place? Why do we truly seek Him? And we might be tempted to say, well, are you saying, Mark, that I need to seek Him even when times are good so that when times aren't that good, I'll be quick to turn to him and we'll have a solid relationship and I'll be able to make it through and he will be my strength. And well, while that may be true, do you see how 
the focus is still on me? Let me walk with God so that when the hard times come, I won't have to experience really the hardship that I'll have greater trust. You see how our relationship with God somehow, again, we become the focus? And while there might be some truth to, yes, understanding that we want to walk with God continuously and have a sense of his presence in good times and bad, I am not the focus. I do not pursue God for my sake. In the early years of high school, there was a kid that we had in the class, and he wasn't that popular, but his family was well off. And earlier in his school years, his parents had held him back. And so he was a year older than everyone else in the class. So when he turned 16, which is the driving age, he also got a new car. And with that new car, he made some new friends. And the whole reason that people within the class chose to make friends with this individual was on the basis of what he owned and what they could get from him. I don't need my mom and dad dropping me anywhere. I got my new friend to pick me up in his flash car. And so the basis of that entire relationship, while they may even grew to tolerate this individual, it was never based on real friendship. There was never any depth to it. And you know what happened? When all the 15-year-olds that were his friends became 16-year-olds and got their licenses, what do you think happened? They ditched them. I was not one of those kids, by the way. I was an angel through my teenage years. So making us the primary focus of pursuing God and about the benefits that I receive is an incorrect focus. And we need to ask ourselves, why do we pursue God in the first place? And think about this. There is this otherworldly being who, is, who dwells in unapproachable light, who is perfect and glorious and mighty, who in his fullness, we could not exist in his presence. And is this being that begins to create the world it is this being who draws us in as people to have a relationship with us. It is this God. There's no one greater, nothing in heaven and earth that is wiser, stronger, more powerful than He. And He chose to know us, to create us, and when we abandon Him, to draw us back again through considerable sacrifice when He did not need to. And it is this God and the magnitude of who he is. That is the reason that I pursue him. I pursue him for him and not for what he gives me. I pursue him to know him and to be with him. King David is a king. He's a worshiper. He's a songwriter and one who had this very special title, a man after God's own heart. And there were times where he would write about, God, you are my strength and my fortress you are my deliverer. You are my protector. But in Psalm 27, David writes these words. God, this is the one thing that I ask. This is the one thing that I seek most, to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, delighting in the Lord's perfections and meditating in his temple. Being in the presence of God, the place of his unique presence, above all else, David doesn't say the one thing that I ask for is that you would bless me and give me a descendant on the throne forever. All of that was a result 
of David's posture before God of wanting to honor him. David doesn't say, this is the one thing that I seek. Don't let me suffer at the hands of my enemies. Give me unimaginable wealth. No, the one, one thing, the one thing that I desire most is to be in the presence of God and let me delight in his perfections. David's life, a shepherd, he's anointed by Samuel. A high moment defeats Goliath. A high moment in his life. Chased by King Saul, his life under threat. A low moment. Finally takes rule of all of Israel and Judah. High moment is chased by his own son. Forced to live in exile. Low moment. And what is this consistent pattern that we see? And David, this is the one thing I asked of the Lord. This is the thing that my heart seeks most, to live in his house and to be with him all the days of my life. Let me know him. Let me be in his presence in times of both turmoil and in times of rest. And here's the important question. What's the one thing that you seek most? We'll leave some time at the end of the message today for you to think about that, but what do you spend most of your time pursuing What do you pray about the most? Is it to receive something from him or is it simply to know him? It is absolutely fine and good and pleasing to petition God for things. In fact, Jesus tells us to do it. He tells his disciples, you can go directly to the Father. He is a good Father and he will bless you with great things. Call upon him and ask But what happens when the petitions for God to act overrun our desires simply just to know him? What happens when there's that imbalance? What happens when we move to a place where the primary driver in our relationship with God is for us to petition to ask him to meet a need in our life? What happens when we enter into a season of rest and there perhaps isn't a pressing need for God to meet? What happens in those times? What happens to our relationship then? What if I get into a place where I'm good? The kingdom's good. The army's good. Everything's good. There's nothing else to ask for. King Asa, again, this is speculation. I wonder if he, in a place of rest, felt that there was nothing else to receive. Everything was good. Good kingdom, good army, family's good. And did Asa for a time take a posture of seeking God for deliverance from enemies? What God could do for him more so than taking a posture of just knowing God for God? I think there's something that we should consider here. The scriptures tell us that God gave Judah and King Asa rest. The Lord gave the rest. How could King Basha of Israel invade Judah? The Lord would have allowed it. Did God allow King Basha to invade so that Asa would once again draw close to him? Was God testing him and the motives of his heart? There's much to consider. I've already speculated enough, and I don't want to cross the speculation threshold this morning. But I'll end with this. I'll ask Sinet if she'll come join me on stage. When the king of Israel invaded, King Asa did not trust God. He put his trust elsewhere in the king of Aram. And that's not speculation, that's fact. Asa had a desired outcome for the king of Israel to leave Judah. And that plan worked 
It accomplished a goal. But we look back at the prophet Hanani's words. The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Listen to me. Asa sought a desirable outcome that the king of Israel would flee, but God was searching for commitment. Asa was searching for a positive outcome. God was searching for committed hearts. And here lies an important aspect in Asa's story for us today. What happens when what we seek most is the thing that God is searching for most? Meaning, what happens when our first priority is to know him, to be committed to him, and God is searching for those who will know him and be committed to him? What happens at that cross-section? What happens in that place? I tell you what happens. A vibrant and flourishing relationship with God. And just as the people of Judah determined within their heart to earnestly seek the Lord, the scriptures say they found him. The true The same is true for us today. God is searching for committed hearts, and when my heart is committed to him, imagine finding him. Wow. Imagine that tomorrow morning you wake up, and before anything important is done, you sit there and say, God, would you allow me to be committed and strengthened by you today? Would would you give me a heart for you today? And you went about your daily life, whether it be at school, university, the retirement village, professional work, taking the kids to school, staying at home, doing a load of laundry. But if your continuous posture was, God, would you give me a heart that would long after you? And that is how we began each and every moment of each and every day. And to take that a step further, what if all of us collectively gathered here together under the God of heaven and said, God, would you search our hearts? Can we be committed to you this very day as we come together in corporate worship? Can we serve one another? God, would you lead us by the power of your spirit? Imagine what would happen. Imagine if we would earnestly seek after God and find him. Can we even begin to imagine what God would do and how he would reveal himself to us in powerful and mighty ways? And how as we've come to know him, he would draw us in further and draw us close to him. In seasons of difficulty, seasons of challenge, or seasons of refinement, and in seasons of rest, let us earnestly seek the Lord. Let us display our commitment and grow in our relationship with him. Thanks for checking out our sermons podcast today. For more information on Ottawa Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ottawabaptist.com.